in the story. Israel had just been taken, so Israel, that's Samaria, Samaria had fallen to the king of Assyria. He had taken, and king of Assyria was, um, was Nineveh. You guys remember Nineveh, you know the story of, of Jonah? Uh, and um, that was actually the Assyrian capital. And uh, the Assyrians had come, and they were a brutal nation. Brutal. I think they introduced a thing called scorched earth. Uh, I think that's what it was called, was what they would burn, they would burn the land and everything of it. What they would do actually is they would resettle a nation in another, so they would take all the Israelites out of Samaria, the capital, and they would go and resettle them in another place. And they would bring a whole bunch of foreigners and put them, so they would disconnect people from their culture actually. And it was one of their tactics. They were a really brutal nation in just the way they did things. I've read some of the stories about them. So they had taken Israel Israel. They had redistributed or resettled the, the nation of Israel. And Judah had not fallen yet. But the king of Assyria had come against Judah. And he was in the process of it. And he had taken a lot of the smaller cities already. But Jerusalem had not fallen yet. So technically, if a cap, you know what it's like now, the, the war that's going on at the moment, Kiev is holding out against Russia. And when Kiev falls, then Ukraine, in a sense, would fall. It's the same, it's the same principle there. It's if you can hold the capital, you can hold, you can hold the, you hold the country, in a sense. Um, so Jerusalem had not fallen. Um, but let's, let's jump in here. So the name, the king of, the name of the king is, is Zincherib, funny name. Um, and uh, from verse 13, Let's jump in there. So it says, In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sancherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong, withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. So what he's saying is, he's actually, he's, he's backing off. He's going, I'm seeing what you're doing to the nations around me. I'm getting scared. Whatever you're going to impose on me, tell me I'll pay the price, actually. And I think, uh, so I'm going to stop right there and I'm going to go and look, because in this picture, Judah, or Jerusalem, and the, and the, 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 Judah, the, the, Jew, the Jews, <laughs> are the chosen people, actually, God's chosen people, and the Syrians represent the enemy. And in our situation, it represents Christians and the devil, actually. So we're beginning to draw these parallels. Okay. So now we know that the Syrian army is coming. They want to take land. And uh, King Hezekiah starts freaking out and he says, okay, what are you, what are you going to, you know, what, what's the cost? And I think what happens here, I think he was a little bit too quick, too hasty to act. I think, because, as the story unpacks, you see, and I think sometimes just the critical for us is we maybe need to take, learn from this lesson. Are we too quick to surrender? Because I think he, he didn't even fight, actually. He hadn't even fought yet. He surrendered. Now, this is God's chosen people. The, the creator of heaven and earth. They believe. I mean, this, they've seen crazy miracles. And they like, they fall. It's like, what's going on here? But they're so quick and hasty to surrender. And I think there's a premature prematurity in it. And I want to go through the go, we'll go through the story. So I think what happens is that a false sense of security comes over us, came over him, I think, when he said, okay, I'll, I'll surrender. Because as we, as we go a little bit down the, down the line, you'll see. And I think we do the same thing. So we, 
you know, we'll make maybe a statement like, I don't want to share anymore because the last time I shared, like, no one responded or anything like that. And that's actually, the enemy is just lied to you and you've surrendered. Or, I'm just going to stop pushing in with people because no one ever pushes in with me. Like what Emil said, yeah, I'm going to, that friendship thing, like, I'm going to stop trying to make friends because nobody ever wants to make friends with me. So what do you do? You should surrender it. Before the fight's even started, you're like, you're out. I can't forgive anymore because that person has just they've hurt me one too many times. And we like, we give up. No, sorry, I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. I'm, out. I'm done. <laughs> sorry, personal book. I'm going to stop serving because no one notices when I serve. No one listens to my input when I have things to say. So I'm going to stop. I'm going to keep quiet. I'm going to stop leading because I'm tired. As, as, as husbands, even, like sometimes we just get tired of leading. I get tired of leading my wife sometimes in my family. I'm just like, I don't want to take it. <laughs> it's like, I don't want to lead anymore. <laughs> you can't do that because we've been called to lead. And, and that's in the, in the marriage context, but there's many different things. I can't just say, oh, God's put me here. I can't just say, I'm not going to lead anymore. I'm just out. Because I'm, it's not working out that way. And I'm, we, we're very quick to surrender. Very quick to surrender. That's some of the other ones I've actually had. I'm just going to compromise on this one thing because God doesn't seem to be giving me what I want. It's like, oh Lord, I keep, I've kept asking you for a husband. I kept asking you for a wife. I've kept asking and you just haven't, like, you haven't, you haven't, you haven't. It's been 10 years. It's been 10 years. You promised something prophesied over me 10 years ago. I'm, I know that I know they don't follow you, but like maybe Lord. They're not I know they're not a follower of Christ, but maybe. I'm gonna try. I'm, and then you get involved in an unequally open relationship and draws you away from the Lord. We surrender. We don't hold on. We don't hold on to his promises. We don't hold on. We, we, we surrender so quickly. Ten years is a long time, actually. A friend of mine was in that situation for ten years and they needed to get married. Good man. Fifteen years. Yeah. Hey, hold on. Hold the line. Hold the line. Don't compromise. We like guys. We, we want to be happy. I get it. We want to be comfortable. But at what cost? And this is maybe my next thing. At what cost? Because and the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, three hundred talents of silver and thirty talents of gold. Do you know how much money that is? In today's terms, that wasn't actually even that much that was imposed on them. But in today's terms, it's over a billion rand. <laughs> At what cost, eh? At what cost did we surrender? I was like, I love, I love reading these stories because they just speak to my heart, actually, when I read them. God speaks straight to me like across. At what, like what price did it pay? It's always more than we can afford. It's always more than we can afford. In the next scripture it goes on, and the Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord, and in the treasures of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the door, doorpost 
And Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Syria. So he goes to the temple, the sacred temple, the holy place, and he strips it of its treasures to give to the enemy. I mean, it's perverted. Like, it just, it's just sacrilege. It's like, how is, how? Like, and, and for me, like, at, at what cost? And we will, and I, we often get into the situation that we will do whatever it takes to get out of our situation, whatever it takes to let the enemy just stop bugging us. In a sense, we start grabbing and paying the price. Actually, we actually, and I felt while I was preparing, I wrote this note. We actually start stripping away from what the Lord has already done in us. Does it sound alright? Can you guys hear me? We start stripping away from the Lord is what the Lord has done in us. And it's it's fascinating that it's like oh, we, we use that phrase sometimes like going around the mountain. And I think when we actually do that, we end up going around the mountain. When we strip what the Lord has done from us already, and we give it back to the enemy, back it's worth, and they've got to put the gold back on the doors. <laughs> Am I making sense, guys? And then it goes, and the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rab Sarus, and the Rab Shakai, with a great army from Lachish to the king of Hezekiah. So now Hezekiah has paid the money. He's paid. Is it the right one? Where are you going? Uh, <laughs> you're reading the rest of the scripture. So now what he does is he sends his three main guys. You know that. They were his like commander in chief, his under commander, and then the guy, the commander over his army. He sends his three main guys. Now Hezekiah's just paid everything. He's paid the whatever you want to call it, the ransom for the country. And what does the what, what does the king do? Sends his army anyway. It's like, and we like, I was like, that blows my mind because we think, we think. That if we surrender some area to the, to the enemy, he's going to back off. Hey, I've got news for you. It's unfortunately, that part's bad news. He's never going to give up. You give him an inch, he'll take an inch. He'll take two if he can. You give him a, give, and you, he's going to take. He's going to keep taking ground. He's going to keep. So you pay that ransom, he's coming anyway. And Because he, he, he wants to destroy you. He wants to annihilate you. He wants to take you out of the game completely. He's not going to let up. So, and he doesn't, he doesn't do half measures either. He sends a great army. Jerusalem wasn't a big city. Eh? He sends his three main Ganaina <laughs> with a massive army just to this little city on a hill to go and take it out. The enemy doesn't. He, play, he's dirty, he plays dirty, man, I'm telling you. He will kick you when you're down. He is vicious and he is ruthless. And we need to be aware of that because we think he's tame sometimes. He's not tame. He is looking for every single angle he gets. You give him an inch, he's going to take, he's going to give him a finger, he'll take your arm. And then they came up and came to Jerusalem. When they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is the highway to the washer's field. It was quite interesting for me here. Like I just picked this up in reading it. For me, it was quite significant where they came and stood. They came and stood at the source of the conduit to the upper pool. 
That was the Gihon Spring, which is actually gave life to Jerusalem. If that spring was not there, they wouldn't have water. Now, what they actually did when they said there's a conduit, Hezekiah actually built it. I've actually walked through it. It's pretty amazing. I mean, have you have anybody been to Israel there? You've been to Israel. Have you gone through it? So there's this like little narrow tunnel. It's like you know, it's very narrow, and it's like about this deep in water, and you walk through it. They somehow they've cut this thing through rock, and it's from, it runs from that spring into the pool of Siloam, which is where they would get where they would actually go and get water. But what they had to do is because obviously the water source for Jerusalem was outside the city, which was again they had to build walls around the source as well. So it's like a funny little shape. It's like the city, and then it kind of goes around and this conduit. Um, and they went and stood at the source of Jerusalem's life, which I think for me is quite significant. If you're thinking, I mean, thinking about the prophetic picture that this is here in our own lives, how often does the enemy come and stand at the source of what brings, gives you life? He, he wants to come and cut off your source, which is Jesus. So he wants to come and murky the water. He wants to come and, he wants to come and interrupt that. So he comes and he, comes, he, he tries to Pervert that thing. He tries to break that. He's going for the source. So if he can just mess up your relationship with Jesus, if he can just get you to take your eyes off Jesus, he's doing good. He's doing very good. Then he's coming for you. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just going to say that bad. So he wants, to choke the, he wants to choke the source of life. Then it goes on to say, And when they called for the king, there came out... Of them, Eliakim, the son of Hilakai, who was over the household, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. Now, this was fascinating for me. They come and they speak to Hezekiah. He sends someone else. And I, the picture I got here, and look, maybe it's just a picture, and maybe it's applicable to us just because I'm, I'm sharing it, is how often we, we don't want to face these things alone. We don't actually want to face them. We want somebody else to fight our fight for us. So you see, we send someone else. We actually don't take, we don't, we shirk the responsibility. We don't take ownership of it. And we go, the enemy's coming at me. Help me. Sort it out. And I'm, now hear what I'm, don't hear what I'm not saying. Because we do, there is a coming alongside one another, praying for one another. But I think the danger is that we actually, we, we lose our fight. We, we have got a fight. There is a sense of, of a, what did I say here? There's a healthy place we need to learn to pick up our weapons and fight ourselves. And Jeff loves this word, and I actually, I do too. We need to build in us a robust faith. Something that is strong and doesn't just co collapse at the sound of the enemy, actually. That we are, in a sense, willing to fight, front-footed and ready to go. And yes, we're going to need those around us. We can't do it on our own, in a sense. But not just to go, oh, go and speak to them, go and speak to them. <laughs> you know? And it does feel to me, I, I don't know if that's exactly what happened, but it does, feels to me that's what, almost what happened. He didn't even go and see these guys, face these guys himself. And the Rabshakeh said to them, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? The enemy always claims to be the ultimate power. Is he the great king, king of Assyria? He's claiming that there's no way out. He's claiming that he is the only way out is actually if you surrender to him. The only way out is if you compromise. The only way out is if you give in. 
He's always going to question your faith because he's asking now, who's your faith in? He's always going to question your faith. He's going to bring doubt and confusion. And the thing is, when he questions your faith, he doesn't question it with a testing type of question. He questions it with a condemning type of question. So God will test your faith too, but to build your faith. The enemy will question your faith to bring doubt and confusion. And we, are, we, are we wakey? Are we, are we like, are we, they, he's coming. He's doing this. He's in us trying now amongst you. And I hope even just as I'm speaking, you're going, sure. I feels like that in my situation now, actually. I feel like that now. I feel like the enemy is standing at the source. He's, he's, he's shouting. He's trying to bring confusion. He's trying to murky the waters. I feel like maybe I've surrendered too quickly in this area. No, I've got to, pick, I've got to stand up and I've got to fight. And there are many areas that I, I believe the Lord can be speaking into. And I'm, 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 this is pretty broad. So I'm like, there could be, many, there could be a, a myriad of different things. Myriad. Then it says, do you think, verse 20, do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? I must say, he does make a good point here, the enemy. Because <laughs> we do, I think, mere words without action will not change a situation. We can talk all we want about it, but until we, until we take action in some things, nothing's going to change. And I think, I just thought of the scripture, be doers and not just hearers of the word, actually. Like, as we live out life together, as we submit it one to another, as we live in the life, as we do those things, it actually brings freedom. If we just listen, hear, and talk about them, it doesn't actually bring freedom. And again, there's the enemy. He's, the enemy's on it. He knows what's going on here. He's sharp. Verse 21, Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Who's your Egypt? What's your Egypt? Who are you trusting in? By Hezekiah doing that, he was trusting in his own strength, actually. He, was, he wasn't trusting in God. He was turning to man to make an alliance with man to overcome the enemy. And we do the same thing. We cope with problems. How do we cope with problems? We do, we, we, and, and there's, okay, I'm trying to say this the right way. I think I, we, should, we always first trust in Jesus. God might say, I'm sending that army to come and help you. But we first look to the Lord. And I think... Yeah, the enemy's again, he's onto something. He's going, who are you trusting in? You've made a deal with Egypt. You lean on that guy. He's, and again, the enemy's 100% right. If you trust in your own strength, you're going to get hurt. If you lean on Egypt, it's going to, that broken reed, wow, that broken reed, he's going to stab your hand. If you trust in your own strength, it's going to, it's going to hurt you. Verse 22. If you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God. It is not, is it not he, sorry, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before the altar in Jerusalem? Now what he's trying to do, you know what Hezekiah was a good king? He removed all the high places. He removed all the places of sacrifice that actually weren't right. 
people thought they were worshipping God in those places. Hezekiah removed all those things because those were actually altars to God. They were just the wrong type of altars to God. They were in the wrong place. Hezekiah removes them. Now the enemy comes and he actually uses those things against Hezekiah, saying to him, but you've taken God's altars away. He's trying to bring condemnation on them, saying, no, 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 God's not going to listen to you anymore because you've actually defied, and actually he's, in that instance he's wrong, but the people don't necessarily know that. Hezekiah knows what he's done. The enemy is going to do everything he can to convince you that the Lord will not come through for you, that the Lord is not aware or even interested in your situation. He's going to pull out every trick in the book. Verse 23 goes on to say this, Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain amongst the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I've come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Intimidation, guys. He's trying to intimidate. The enemy comes with intimidation tactics of note. He's been doing this for thousands of years. He knows how to intimidate. He even offers them. He says, yeah, I'll give you horses if you can just put a few, enough riders on them. And your little small army, the least of the guys in our army, you're not going to, will lick you. <laughs> you're not going to do anything. He even tries to bring the Lord into it, trying to confuse them again, saying, you, the, the Lord sent me to come and destroy you. Interesting, eh? Verse 26. Then Eliakim, 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 the son of Helikai and Shebna and Joah, said to the Rabshakai, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah, within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakai said to them, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? That's pretty disgusting. The enemy will try to instill fear and dread. It's part of his intimidation tactics. He's not talking just to the guys there. He's speaking so loudly that the guys on the walls can hear and they're indirectly hearing what he's saying and they're beginning to fear. And that's why they said to him, no, please don't do that. So again, intimidation tactics, fear, dread. He's trying to instill hopelessness into the situation. Is this helpful, guys? It's a little different. I know I normally, I normally preach a little differently, but I, I just, I'm, I felt it would be good to go through this stuff together, actually. Then the Rabshakeh, verse 28, stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver you. Sorry, deliver us. And this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. He's going to lie to you guys. Obviously he's going to lie to you. That's a, he's trying to convince them. Hezekiah's told you to trust the Lord. Don't trust the Lord. He's not going to help you. We know, looking back, if they trusted in the Lord and they do venture trusting in the Lord, what, hap what happens, what the outcome is. So we know the truth. We know the truth. It's easy, though, to know the truth when you're sitting on this side of history. 
<laughs> Imagine being in that situation, going, jeez, okay, I'd be, no, I've got to admit, I think I might be doubting too. Verse 31, do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus is the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Each one of you will eat his, of his own vine, and each one of you his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Now this was fascinating to me. He's offering them a pleasant and good life, actually. There's a false sense of security. He's saying, come out, surrender. I'll give you a vine to eat from. I'll give you water to drink. There, if you stay there, you're going to suffer. But if you come out, I'll give you things. I'll give you riches. And then the very next line he says, until I come and take you away to a land like your own. That stuck out for me. Because that is a counterfeit. Like your own. It's not your own. It's like your own. God promised them a land that would be their own. Not luck. And God has promised you an inheritance, not a like your inheritance. Not something on this earth that is temporal and fleeting, but He's promised you an eternal inheritance. The enemy is going to come and try and give you something on this now, the here and now, that looks like that. But it's not. He may even give you a false sense of peace about things. He may, He is. So sneaky. That, for me, that really stuck out. False promises. False promises. Then he goes on to say, A land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. So who wants to die? I mean, no one really wants to die, right? So it seems quite attractive. Okay, we're going to die if we stay here. We're going, to have some, we're going to have much if we go there. And it seems attractive. It seems like a good option. But if it's not the Lord's promise for them, whose promise is it? That's one thing. Like We've got to ask ourselves the question. If it's not the Lord's promise, because the Lord promised them their own land. If it's not the Lord's promise, who's promising it? We've got, to, we've got to define, yeah, we've got to discern. Then he says, and do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land, ever delivered his land out of the hand of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharavim, Hena and Iva? <laughs> Have they delivered Samaria out of, the hand, out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the land have delivered their lands out of my hand? The Lord should deliver what? That the Lord should deliver the um, Jerusalem out of my hand. So what's he doing here? He's com he's com There's a comparison that's happening, but he's actually it's a it's a counterfeit comparison. Actually, these are false gods. They're not even real gods. But he's gonna he brings a comparison. He compares the living God to these dead gods, and he says, Look, those dead gods did nothing for them. Obviously, they didn't do anything for them. They're dead gods. We serve a living God. But there's a there's a comparison. He tries to bring a comparison in. There's a false comparison. And I 
Comparison leads to compromise. So when we start looking, okay, maybe their gods didn't do anything, maybe we should start wondering, like worrying, and maybe we should start surrendering. You know, we, we may even do this sometimes. We look at other people and we go, why are they not being attacked like we're being attacked? Why are they being blessed and, we not, and, I, and I'm not being blessed? I'm following the Lord. That oak's not even following the Lord. Why is he being blessed? What's it to you? God's busy with you. You don't know what's going on in that situation. An outward appearance of success may mean inner turmoil. Like we judge things very superficially. We don't know what's going on in somebody's situation. I'm going to promise you, if, if Satan is the prince of this world, is he? Do you guys know that? You know that? This, this is his domain, actually. Satan is the prince of this world. He can give things. He can give you things. So can he maybe not give people things just to keep them not looking at God? He could feed you. He can feed you enough blessing, worldly version of blessing. When I say that, to keep you from looking at God, a counterfeit. The danger of comparison, eh? It it disheartens us, and the enemy loves that. He wants us to compare ourselves to one another. He wants us to look at the person next to us and go, but why them, Lord? Why haven't I got that? It breeds something within us that does not look like Jesus. And then it goes on to say, but the people were silent and answered not. For the king's command was, do not answer them. Then Eliakim, the son of Helikai, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, and the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the rapture. Now they tore their clothes in dismay. They were absolutely mortified and horrified of this. So now it's a very important thing here. Okay, have we seen what the enemy does? Have we seen like how he's, he's out? He's looking. He wants to destroy all the different tactics of him. But this is a very important thing. He says, how do we respond to this though now? So how, how does Hezekiah respond? And this was very key for me. So he tears his clothes, which is a sign of he's distraught. He puts sackcloth and ashes on his head and he goes into the temple. It's a sign of humbling himself, humility, before the Lord. And he humbles himself before the Lord. And he sends word to Isaiah, who's the prophet at the time. And Isaiah comes back in two kings. He says, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid. And there's something for me, like Hezekiah has been afraid the whole time, listening to what's going on. His men, his the people in his city, they're like quivering. He humbles himself and the word, the truth, the word of the Lord comes to him and says to him, do not be afraid. And I, I, I really felt like this. There's something in the response of humbling ourselves, actually. And, and often humbling yourselves looks like responding, even now. Like we, we say, okay, guys, if the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you in this, do you, will you respond? And in the response is humility. Sometimes coming to the front takes humility. 
actually. And that's why I say, I invite people to come stand in the front, because it actually takes, it breaks something. It's, it's a sign. It's, it's breaking your fear of man. It's breaking your own dependency, your own pride. No, I'm fine. I'm going to handle it like the Lord's busy with me. No, no, no. Humble yourself before the Lord. I've, I've, that, that, those words have been ringing through my ears for the last couple of weeks. Humble, we need to humble ourselves before the Lord. And if we humble ourselves before the Lord, the word of the Lord will come to us. And the word of the Lord brings faith. Faith by hearing. Hearing the word of. Hearing the word of. God. Stirs faith up in us. So there's something in... Have you guys understood what I... Like, have you identified any of these things? As I've been sharing with you, as the Holy Spirit maybe been speaking to you, as you've been showing areas in your life that have been under attack? Because he's, he's attacked. There we are under attack. So I'm going to ask us to do this. That we actually we respond to this word. But maybe before... We need to understand that they were the Lord's. They were His chosen people. And the thing is, you can't say... We can't not be afraid if we don't belong to him. So first of all, there's a call to actually go, I'm not a child of God. I'm not what's represented in this story in Jerusalem, actually. And I need to first become a child of God. How do I do that? And the response to that is actually accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The word says, if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart, you will be saved. So there's a... Oh my goodness, that's me. I don't have a relationship with Jesus. I can't say that I am a child of God. I can't say that I cannot fear because I'm not even in this picture right now. And I want in. And you can be in. That's the incredibly good news of the good news. That it's free. You can be in. All you have to do is believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, and begin to walk in Him. He's calling you. So if there's anyone here this morning that's been listening to me going, oh my goodness, that's made so much sense to me. The, the, I can feel the enemy, bring, like I can feel this rubbish going on in my ear the whole time. It's bringing doubt and confusion. I can feel a heaviness. I can feel these things. But I don't know God. I don't know Jesus. And you want to surrender your life to him now. Before we even go on any further, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. That we can pray with you, we can welcome you into the kingdom, and then we can carry on with the meeting. It's, it's, it's very important. I don't know everyone here, I don't think. Is there anybody like that? Yeah. That hasn't got a relationship with Jesus, that hasn't accepted him as their Lord and Savior? No, that's fine. Maybe one day there will be. So. The call, I think, is to fight. And it's an encouragement to fight. It's an encouragement to stand against the enemy. But how do we do that? By humbling ourselves before him. And I, I'm, I'm going to ask you guys, if you want to respond to that, and we're going we're to just get around you guys, and we're going to pray. Trust for a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. A trust for a fresh outpouring of the Spirit that you're actually able to fight the enemy, that you're able to stand against him in this. So why don't you guys want to stand with me, maybe? Maybe you can just come up to him. Sorry, my wife just reminded me something. I, I got. So how's this? The rest of the story goes like this. Sorry. 
So God does answer them. I stopped it. Do not be afraid. I was like, this is the punchline. Sorry, guys. I stopped it. Do not be afraid. What actually happens though? God sends, um, sends a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, he, he confuses the, 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 those three guys. They hear a rumor and they go back to, um, to the king. And they find that the king is actually, he's not fighting where they thought he was. I'm paraphrasing, love. You don't have to read it right now. You want to read it? That night, the angel of the Lord went out to the Syrian camp and killed... I'm jumping ahead. Sorry. Jumping ahead. That happens afterwards. So he, <laughs> so he puts... He puts a... He confuses these guys. They go back to the king. And they see that... Okay, that, and the king sends again his army to Jerusalem. Then they encamp outside Jerusalem. Then the angel of the Lord comes. And he... In one night, he slays 185,000 men. Hezekiah and his army didn't do a thing. That is the God that we serve. Powerful, the rider on the white horse, the commander of the armies of heaven. That is who we serve. And that's who you're surrendering to. That is who you're humbling yourself before. That is when you respond now, if, that you can, if, if that's you, that is the one you're going, Lord, I trust in you. Because when I trust in you, I do not have to be afraid. Because you fight my battles for me. Does that make more sense? Better. Sorry. Well done. You want to share something? Just on that one point um, where Ross was saying the enemy intimidates you, I think that you've, you've like toiled in vain. Like on, on whom do you rest this trust of yours? And like better just give up now. And I was reminded of Psalm 73 where, where David is looking at how the wicked prosper. And he's looking at them and he's saying they wear pride around their necks like a necklace. They have riches. They seem to have no worries. And he's like, look at me. And then he gets to the point where he says, but when I entered the sanctuary of the Lord, then I discerned. Then suddenly his, his lens was cleared and he went, hold on. The end of the wicked is they're going to perish. So even if it looks like they're succeeding now, even if they have no worries, riches, a house at Clifton, <laughs> whatever else, it's when he's truly God in God's presence that he ends that psalm saying, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And I think even as part of this response, there's like a clearing of our lenses that we go, hold on, like we've been kind of moaning about certain facts that aren't happening in our lives, but we might just be comparing. I don't know if that resonates with you. I just, yeah, I pray that God clears our lenses like that. So maybe that, that's the first thing. So if you feel like there's been a comparison in your life, actually, you've looked, and actually you, you've realized you've got to humble yourself before the Lord right now. Surrender that thing to Him. I want to, I want to in faith, in humility, I'm going to ask you to take a step of faith and come and surrender.